Be seated. Kids, you can meet at the back of the sanctuary and we'll dismiss you up to kids' ministry. And church, uh, pull out your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 8. And uh, while you do that, I would like to tell you something totally expected and 100% unsurprising. I am called to ministry. Like, oh, you're like, okay, that's like a world-rocking idea, right? I am called to full-time vocational ministry. And you know what some people ask me sometimes? How did you know that you were called to ministry? And, uh, and I, indeed, have had some experiences of God prompting me to give more clear and direct pursuit to ministry, but I always feel a little weird when I get the question, how did you know you were called to ministry? Because my awareness of my calling has nothing to do with those promptings that I told you about. Right, like God, so, so God prompted me to, to kind of clearer pursuit, uh, more direct pursuit of certain things but my calling, I feel weird when I get the question because my calling to ministry had nothing to do with those promptings. Now the promptings, what they did do is they clarified for me gifting and they clarified for me passion and, and they were uh, affirmed by other people in my life, right? And so, so all of that is significant, but do you know how I knew I was called? Let me tell you how I knew I was called. I knew I was called to ministry because you're called to ministry. Right? I knew that I was called to ministry because every believer in Jesus is called to ministry. Right? There's just no question about this. You are called to full-time vocational ministry. Now, you like I, th those words that we use, what they literally mean describe the same thing for me and for you. Now, that's going to look different between how you and I exercise that ministry, how we work it out, right? You have a job, and I understand, like you have, a lot of people in this room have jobs, have occupations that you carry out. But if you believe in Jesus, your job is a part of your ministry, Right? It's, it's something that, it's, it's a part of your expression of being a minister of the good news of Jesus. So how do I know this? Well, we'll spend most of the morning talking about how I know this, right? That's what we're going to work through in, in a little bit over the morning. But one of the primary ways that I know this comes from when I read my job description, right? So, so the Bible gives me a job description in the role that I play. And this is my job description, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and here's me, the shepherds and teachers, in verse 12, to equip the saints for... The work of ministry. Right? The implication is that, uh, yes, I am doing work, but I am not the only person doing the work of ministry. The work of ministry is something that we all own for the building up of the body of Christ. So what that means is that my job, the job of our elders, the job of people who are gifted with leadership and with teaching and with specifically apostleship and prophets and evangelists right, and shepherds and teachers we have a primary job description 
that is to equip all of God's people for the ministry. In fact, what that means is that we are, we are in fact meant to make ourselves replaceable, right? Like we work ourselves out of a job. That's our goal. That's what we're trying to do. Okay, so uh, that, that kind of sets the stage for a few things. Today we are starting a new series in the book of Leviticus, which for everybody who is like, you know, we got through the offerings. I know some of you are cheering. We're done with the offerings, yay. We're, we're starting a new series in the book of Leviticus uh, called Priests. And in this series, we're examining the calling and responsibility of those who carried out ministry in the temple. So because Leviticus was always training God's people for what God was going to do later, we're discovering the significance of what the job of priests has for our own calling because the New Testament job title for followers of Jesus is priests. We're called priests. Debbie read it for us this morning. At the end of time, when everybody's looking around and saying, who is worthy to open the scroll? Uh, the, everybody says, Jesus is worthy. The Lion of Judah is worthy. One of the things that he has done is he has ransomed the people to himself and made them, it says, a kingdom of priests to God. That, that, that is one of the job titles that we are given as followers of Jesus. So what does it mean? that we have a priestly ministry calling and how should we carry it out? That's what we are examining in this new series. So Leviticus 8, 1 through 3 says this. In verse 1 it says, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil and the bull of the sin offering and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread, verse 3, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So up to this point, the only thing that has happened in the book of Leviticus has been God giving instruction to Moses, right? So we talked about all of those sacrifices and all of the different kinds of offerings that people could bring, but up to this point, nobody has actually offered a sacrifice. Nobody has done anything in the new sanctuary, in the new temple or in the new tabernacle like nobody has done anything in relation to these things only up to this point has there been instruction given and so Moses what that means if you remember our story and kind of how the, the narrative progressed we started Leviticus and at, at the end of the book of Exodus Moses like God had come to finally dwell in the tabernacle and it was all exciting and all this stuff but then you see at the book of Exodus Moses could not go into the tent of meeting he was not able to get into where God was. And this is a problem, right? Because Moses needs to be able to commune with God. And, and so it's really problematic if, if the leader of God's people cannot get to where God is. And so then we get all of this instruction and we're still in this place after the instruction where Moses cannot get in. This tabernacle has been built with human hands, but not one sacrifice has been offered. Not one action of preparedness has taken place. And so God has given the instruction, but then now the instructions actually need to be carried out. That's where we're at right now. So what God does is he says, in order to get us ready to be carrying these instructions out, we need to gather everybody together. We're all going to witness the same thing together. And so they all come together and witness how this tabernacle that they have built together is going to become usable. And so this is what they do. We're going to see something happen with the priests. And there are two major movements of our passage today. The first thing that we're going to see is kind of the priest being presented before the people. 
Just this reality that the priests are coming forward and the reality of their responsibility is coming before the people. But then we're actually going to look at the, the process of preparing the priests for what they have to do. So we have the presentation of the priests and then we have the preparation of the priests. So the, the presentation first. In verse 6 of chapter 8, it says this. Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. So in order for the people to be able to relate to God, right, because that's the goal of this whole tabernacle thing, God is with his people, they need relationship with him, the priests are the people who facilitate that. You cannot have a temple system without priests. You cannot have relationship with God without priests. And so Aaron and his sons are the priests. They're the first kind of installment of these priests that we're looking at. And it's crucial that the people of Israel are able to witness these priests being set apart for their special purpose because Israel cannot relate to God without priests. Israel cannot make sacrifices without priests. Israel cannot be forgiven without priests, right? They need these people in place. And you add to that that the priests are the only ones who are allowed to handle God's holy things. And we talked last week a little bit about the holy things and the kind of gravity they have, the significance that they play. In fact, the danger that you encounter if you do not handle them rightly. And so, so these people, these human beings that God is setting aside, they need to be qualified for the task that is set before them. There's a problem that none of them is qualified. <laughs> like not one of them is actually ready or prepared in any way to do this most holy job that they have been assigned. And so starting with this washing of water, we will observe them every step of the way, getting to the point where God considers them ready to perform the responsibility that they've been given. But I just want to ask this question. The question is this, why do we need priests? And this is kind of like the the 30,000 foot view of what priests do, why they exist. We need priests because priests help people relate to God according to his word. So there are two two verbs in there, help and relate. So priests help according to God's word, right? So we like priests can't just do whatever they want to do to help people relate to God's word. They have specific instructions for the, how they help people. But then the people relate to God and And also, the people can't relate in whatever way they want. They also do so according to God's word. And for what it's worth, like, yes, this idea that we are our people, we, New Testament priests, people who believe in Jesus, that we help people relate to God, it's significant, but it's worth saying that we still do so according to God's word. And we still invite people to relate to God according to his word. Like, we can't just, like, make things up and say, well, yeah, if you just, uh, you know, like, free float out in the world, like, you can feel God's presence and, like, you can, like, no, everything that we do, the words that we do, the things that we encourage people to do, it all comes to us from God's word, right? So, so our helping, people relating, all of this is according to the instruction that God has given. First Peter 2.9 says this to us. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. So before we move too far, can we just recognize what a tremendous privilege it is that we have been called to this task? Right? God saves us, but he doesn't stop at saving us. He says to us that he wants to use us. Right? There are people trapped in darkness 
who are asleep, who are stuck under the weight of addiction and sin and various kinds of things. They're in desperate need of connection to their creator. There are people under threat of hell if they stay in darkness. There are people who have never known what it is to relate to God. There are people who are isolated and disconnected, people who do not understand why they even are alive. And God says to you, you have the calling to show them what it's like to relate to me. Right, you have the calling to be a part of my people who love each other and show people what my love looks like. You have the calling to experience wholeness and forgiveness and reconciliation with me and then extend the opportunity for wholeness and forgiveness and reconciliation with me to others. You have the opportunity to show them what light looks like when they are stuck in darkness. That's given to every single one of us who follows Jesus. So it's a tremendous opportunity we have, and we'll continue exploring it here. In verse 7 of chapter 8, it says, About the high priest, he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him, this is Aaron, with the robe, and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. Verse 8, and he placed the breast piece on him, and in the breast piece he put the urim and the thummim. Verse 9, and he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Now we're not going to get into the detail of everything that the high priest was wearing. Uh, yeah, I, I encourage you, if you want to do research, we actually covered this when we looked uh, at the book of Exodus, because Exodus also talks about all of these different pieces that the high priest was supposed to wear. But I just want to help you understand the significance. When people are witnessing this, what the high priest is wearing, what adorns his body, is the most utterly dazzling thing in all of the camp of Israel. Right, so like when he, the high priest is standing up there in front of them, like that is the most striking thing to look at, the high priest and what he is wearing. It's, uh, in the breast piece are, are 12 jewels, 12 different kinds of jewels that represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Right, everything about it, about what the high priest was wearing, communicated significance, importance, like most importance. In fact, it said it talks about the turban that the high priest wears, but in the middle of that turban, or kind of at the front of it, is a golden plate. Now, it doesn't say here what's on that golden plate, but we know from the book of Exodus that that golden plate inscribed on it is holy unto Yahweh, set apart to God. Right? That, is, that, that is what is on the high priest. So everything about what the high priest is wearing is communicating like otherness and importance and significance. So I want you to, to notice something with me because there's a reason why the high priest is wearing these things. Note with me this. Whatever marks the high priest marks the priesthood. Right? So, so when Israel looks at the high priest and they see him adorned in all of these things, they have not in mind just the individual who is standing there, but the priesthood that he represents. They see the priesthood when they see the high priest. Right, so, 
So the, the dazzling jewels, the ephod, the, the crown, all of this conveyed the significance and the holiness, not just of him, but of the entire priesthood. So verse 10. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And verse 11, he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils in the basin and its stands to consecrate them. So anointing with oil was a way to mark that a person or thing was set apart for a special purpose or a person was called to a special purpose, set apart for the work that God planned to accomplish. It was a way to mark something being extraordinary, right? So you have ordinary things, but then by taking oil and pouring it over something, you're designating that, that God is calling this thing extraordinary, outside of what is normal in the literal sense of the word. And so that is a word that, that is used to describe these things that are being anointed. We see this word consecrated. The word consecrated literally means made holy, or holified, right? Like, just go with me on that. That's a new verb that we're going to make up this morning. Holified. Uh, literally, what is happening is Moses is holifying things, making them holy so that they are set apart for special purposes. Now, we use the word holy a lot when we talk in church. Holy is used most frequently as we talk about God, right? We're talking about his otherness, his set-apartness, right? His purity, his perfection. So to holify something is literally to say that that thing is set apart for God's righteous purposes. Right, so what do they do? They take it, and like from the perspective of everybody watching, they're literally, like they're taking like pitchers of oil and just pouring it all over everything. Like oil is going everywhere as they witness this, right? So what does this mean? This means that the, the place that they do their work, like the tabernacle, the ground that they walk on is set apart, right? The tools that they use are set apart, but the altar that they sacrifice on is set apart. Literally, like the, the curtains that surround the space that they do the majority of their work in is set apart, right? Every square inch of the place that they are in is being set apart. Oil is poured on all of it to designate that this is an extraordinary place set apart for God, where people are going to meet with God. So verse 12. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. So even the chief representative of the priest is going to have oil poured on him to set him apart. And through his anointing, right, through the anointing of the priest, what is meant for the whole congregation of Israel to see is that the entirety of the priesthood is being set apart because the priest is being anointed. Now, this is a bit confounding because Aaron is the individual who's standing up there representing the holy priesthood. He's the one who's having oil poured on him, and, and literally the, the congregation is hearing Aaron is the one who is set apart for God's holy purposes. Do you guys remember what Aaron did? Right? 
I mean, if anybody was responsible for the utter just like nature of sin that Aaron carried out, that the people carried out, right? Because, okay, so just to explain it, if you don't remember the story, I'll just give a brief recap, right? So uh, God uh, gives commands, and one of those commands is, you shall not make an image of me so that you can worship it and relate to me, right? And so, so they get the commands, and then Moses goes back up on the mountain, and they're there for like, let's say five days, maybe 10 days. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's say it's 10 days, right? And they're getting a little antsy, right? Moses has been gone up on the mountain a long time. So you know what they do? They're like, ah, oh, we can't see this God, even though like there's uh, smoke that's filling up the mountain and uh, maybe Moses died up there. You know what we need to do? We need to make an image so that we can worship it. Like God literally said, do not make an image so that you may worship it. And they said, well, I think we need to make an image so that we may worship it. And do you know what Aaron said? Yeah, I think that's a good idea. <laughs> So, so he takes their stuff and he, uh, he puts it all together and they, they boil it down and out comes this, uh, this calf, right? This bull that they're all going to, to worship together. That's what Aaron did. Aaron was directly responsible for the sin that Israel carried out in rebelling against God. Aaron is the reason that Moses cannot go into where God is right now. He holds responsibility and so I can't help but think that there's kind of this cognitive dissonance for the people of Israel as they look at Aaron and see all of this stuff saying that he is supposed to represent us. Right now, thank the Lord for his mercy, right? Aaron, Aaron repented and God had mercy, right? And he still allowed this process to exist. But there's a reality that we have to name and that reality is this. The glory of Aaron's priesthood is always dimmed by rebellion. I do not care how brightly you polish the gemstones that are on that breastpiece. Rebellion will always dim the glory of Aaron's priesthood. There's no way around it. Remember, whatever marks the high priest marks the priesthood. Right? So even though the pieces are consecrated, and even though sacrifices are about to be made, you can still look at this and, and see something about the situation being weighed and found wanting. Right? So if even the chief representative is prone to rebellion, what can we possibly do? So good news. As new covenant priests, Aaron is not our representative. Aaron is not our high priest. Jesus is our high priest. Hebrews 7, 26 through 28. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Verse 27, he, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins. Of, he, he has no need to offer sacrifices for his own sins because he was holy and innocent and unstained and separated from sinners. He had no need for that because he was perfect. But then he had no need to offer daily sacrifices for those of the people since it says he did this once for all when he offered up himself. 
Because he was himself a perfect sacrifice, his sacrifice was sufficient not just to cover a sin until it's repeated, but to cover all sins, past, present, and future, once for all. That's that high priest. In verse 28, Jesus, our high priest, it says, For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. That's our high priest. Right? That's, that's, that's Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is telling us, hey, the, the priest who marks our priesthood is far better than any of the previous high priests. Right? His benefits abound to us. And then, so let's just talk about, remember we said whatever marks the high priest marks the priesthood. So what marks this high priest? And this is why I believe that the writer of Hebrews started by emphasizing the utter glory of Jesus above all things. Because if you go back to the beginning of the book of Hebrews, at the very beginning, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, remember this is the glory that represents our priesthood. And many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Whom? Let's just listen for the things that mark the glory of this new priesthood. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through whom also he created the world. He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty. On high, in verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. So you want to talk about a high priest who's got his act together, right? Who is utterly set apart. And remember, what marks the high priest marks the priesthood. So church, this is remarkably good news. Jesus' priesthood is marked by Jesus' perfected glory. The priesthood that we are a part of that he calls us, we are called his priests, right? The priesthood that we are a part of is not marked by the dimness of rebellion. It's marked by Jesus' perfected glory. Now, why would I spend all the time kind of going into this and trying to, to labor over this to help you understand? What are the implications of this for you? I have at least three. Number one, this demolishes the lie that God could never use you. It destroys that lie. That lie cannot stand up to the reality that Jesus is the one who represents you. Like, Because you know what? What God can do through you is actually not about you. Right? It's it's not about what you have to give from within you. It's not about what you can muster up in yourself. And if you're thinking, oh, I can't muster up enough to do what God would want to do, you're right. But it's not about what you have to give. Right? Jesus is your high priest. You are not your high priest. And so it's about what you have to give that you have received from Jesus, right? It's about the resources that Jesus has to offer, right? So God can indeed use you if Jesus is your high priest. This also issues a call to a purpose of highest value. 
The writer of Hebrews is doing, uh, like, laboring really, really hard to make sure that you know that Jesus is kind of like the most important figure in the entire universe, right? Utter uh, first importance is where he sits, right? And so if he is of first importance, then everything that we would do as a result of being a part of his priesthood means that every, like, it all points back to him. It all lifts him up. It all glorifies him, right? So, so this is the, this purpose that we have been called to, like, no matter how we feel about it, it is the most significant purpose that we can live into. It's the most significant thing that we can set our minds to, set our efforts to. So it issues a call to a purpose of highest value. But then finally, and I think most importantly, what this does is that this reframes everything that you call ordinary. Reframes everything that you call ordinary. As our high priest, Jesus pours out his anointing, right? Remember, anointing told us what was set apart. He pours out his anointing on us by Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit empowers us and consecrates us for ministry, right? He gives us gifts. He strengthens our faith. He kills sin. He makes us bold. He leads and directs us. He is the living God with us. So, not only have you been anointed with Jesus's anointing, but you can be left to assume that the places you go and the tools you used, much like oil was poured out over the entire sanctuary, right, on the very ground that they walked on, if you were to understand the places you go and the, the tools you use as extensions of the ministry that God has called you to, then that means that the places you go and the tools you use to carry out his priestly calling are set apart for the work that he wants to do. Right, so implications, what does this apply to? Well, it most certainly applies to work that you do in the church. So, like, forgive me for being a little bit inane and maybe, like, oversimplifying things, but, like, folding bulletins is consecrated ministry. Right. Greeting people at the doors is consecrated ministry. Making coffee is consecrated ministry. Running sound is consecrated ministry. Cleaning the church is consecrated ministry. Mowing the lawn is consecrated ministry. Praying for each other, goodness, is consecrated ministry. Playing with babies in the nursery is consecrated ministry. Right. Serving with our kids' ministry and teaching kids is consecrated ministry. Counting the money is consecrated ministry. Speaking words of encouragement to one another is consecrated. Preparing communion is consecrated. Singing in worship is consecrated. Gathering together for worship is consecrated. Right? All of it is set apart for holy purposes. Not one part of it is outside of this category that we call set apart. When it's done for him, it's consecrated. So, that's things in the church, right? But it also applies to the places we go out to from here. Your relationship with that impossible coworker of yours is consecrated. Your walks around your neighborhood are consecrated. 
right? Your divine appointments at the coffee shop or in your front yard are consecrated. The gyms at Horizon in Sycamore Trails are consecrated, right? The acts of selfless service for those you know who are struggling, those are consecrated. Every act that you take in carrying out every piece of that acronym of BLESS is consecrated. Your sharing of God's word with those who need it is consecrated. Your integrity in your job is consecrated ministry. All of it is something that your high priest calls holy unto Yahweh. All of it. Because he has called you to it to be a priest who handles holy things in everything that you do. Right, so, so church, get this. This is the big idea that I'm trying to emphasize here. Your priestly calling is as eternal and significant as the name of Jesus. The name that is above every name. Every single aspect of what you do as an extension of what Jesus has called you to is as important and significant as his name. So, Do not doubt your calling as a priest because every part of it that you carry out is as important as his name. So verse 13 says this, Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. So these priests, now they go through a bit of ceremony that everybody's going to witness. The sight of all Israel is going to witness them. So, so yes, they are anointed now and they are washed and they are clothed with these robes, but now offerings need to be brought. Sacrifices need to be made before this priesthood is ready to carry out their calling. So verse 14 of Leviticus 8, it says, Then he brought the bull of the sin offering. So step one of preparing these priests for their calling is that their sin debt must be paid and they must be purified. They need to offer a purification offering. And so Moses comes and he offers a a sin offering for them. So skip down to verse 18. That's step one. Their sin debt needs to be paid. Step two. Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering. You remember the burnt offering? It represents to us that God wants the whole thing. He wants every part of us, right? Every part of that animal went up to God. It was taken up in smoke. And in the same way, God demands every single part of our lives. So when they give that burnt offering, they are reminded of the fact that every single part of them belongs to God. That's step two, burnt offering. Step three, verse 22 says this, then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. So um, we did not walk through an ordination sacrifice when we, uh, when we did all of the offerings because this applies to only one circumstance. It applies to the preparation of priests. So let's talk about this word ordination because that, that was a, you remember, if you were here a year ago, uh, I got ordained and, uh, and my ordination does not match anything about what the biblical ordination looks like. So uh, yeah, amen, that's right, that's right. Uh, so what does this word ordination mean? Ordination is the process, literally, this is what the word literally means. The process of saturating or filling something up. Right, so, so uh, if you think of a cup, you fill that cup up with water, you can talk about that cup being ordained with water. Or if I were to take uh, 
you know, a pitcher of water and to pour it out over this table so that it covers the whole table, right? You could talk about this table being ordained with water. That's the kind of imagery that we're talking about with ordination, right? So we, we've, we've kind of made up this religious word and applied it, but, but literally we're talking about the idea of something being saturated. Right, so this is interesting as you think about this in the book of Genesis because this is where this word comes up. Genesis 6.13, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end to all flesh for the earth is ordained with violence through them. It's the same exact word. The, the, the earth is ordained with violence through them. Behold, I will stro- destroy them with the earth. The idea is that the earth is saturated, that the earth is filled up with these kinds of things. And so the same word is used here in Leviticus 8.22. Right? So God is saying to the priests, your whole life, you have been living in a world that is saturated with brokenness and with death. That's what you have been soaking in the entire time that you've been living. So in order for me to use you Here's step three of their preparation. My priests need to experience a holy saturation. Right Right now, up to this point, you have been living in unholy saturation. Right, But for me to use you, you need to experience a holy saturation. So what does that look like? Three big ideas that describe this saturation. Verse, first in verse 23, it says, uh, so the ram that he brought forward for this ram of ordination, he killed it, and Moses took some of the blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. And just to note, after he does this with Aaron, he does it with all of Aaron's sons who are the priests as well. So, so first of all, why blood? Well, uh, we've talked about this a few times, but... You cover, like when they, they splattered blood against the altar, blood, the life of the thing is in the blood, right? So the idea is that the altar, as it sits outside of the place where God's presence is, the altar is being contaminated by death and by sin constantly because out here in this world is where death and sin is. God and life are in there, in the sanctuary. So as the altar sits out here, we have to keep putting life, blood, on the altar to, to, to purify it, to make it prepared to present sacrifices to God. Blood is being now put on the priests to purify them, to, to get rid of the, the death or to cover the death that they are being contaminated with. And so on the right ear, on the right hand, and on the right foot, this is representing something for us. It's telling us that like in a world where people are listening to the voice of death and lies that the priests listen to the voice of life and truth, right? It's telling us when they put it on his right thumb that in a world where people set their hands to the works of death, you accomplish the Lord's work of life, right? When it's put on the right foot, in a world where people walk in the counsel of the ungodly and stand in the path of sinners and sit in the seat of scoffers, you walk in the ways of the Lord, Right, so, so in every one of these ways, it's saying that God's priests are set apart to hearing and doing God's will. So let's talk about what holy saturation looks like. We're going to just develop a list that, that uh, Moses is building out here for us. Holy saturation looks like, number one, being set apart to hearing and doing God's will. 
right? That's, that's one of the ways that they are going to be prepared. They're going to be set apart to this thing. Okay, so it goes on in verse 26. And out of the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened loaf and one loaf of bread with oil and one wafer and placed them on the pieces of fat and on the right thigh. That's all the pieces of the sacrifice, right? Verse 27, and he put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons and waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. Okay, so remember, everybody in Israel is watching this as it is taking place. All of this ordination, it was like a very unique thing for them to witness. So let's talk about why it's unique. In every other sacrifice, blood covers the implements, not the people. Right? In all of the five sacrifices that we witness, blood covers the implements, the altar, the tools, right? It does not cover the people. In all of the other sacrifices, the altar is the thing that holds the pieces of the sacrifice, not the people. Right, so what's happening? Imagine you're an Israelite and you're watching, and, and as this is happening, your thought should be, oh, that's interesting, Moses is putting blood on those people. Oh, that's interesting. Moses is placing the sacrifices on those people. Moses is treating those people like they are altars. Right? They, Moses is treating those people like they are parts of the sanctuary. And suddenly you realize that another lesson is being taught as you're witnessing all of this. God's priests are a part of the structure where he dwells. Right there. So as, as you, an Israelite, are observing this, you're saying, yes, they have an identity as an individual, but now their identity as an individual is being kind of taken into this bigger thing called the sanctuary. Right? That, that, that priest, yes, is a person, but they're also a part of God's sanctuary. They're also a person who carries God's presence. God's priests are carriers of God's presence. Right, so God is preparing them, not as individuals who simply facilitate activities in the sanctuary, but as, to use some New Testament language, living stones that make up the sanctuary. Right, parts of the place where his presence can be found. So what that means for us then is that the second piece of holy saturation looks like being carriers of God's presence. Right? There is a world of people who are desperate to be connected to God. And what that means is that priests, we are the ones who carry, who extend God's presence to people who are in need. All right, so then verse 29. Moses took the breast and waved it for a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination, and the Lord commanded Moses... Verse 31, Moses said to Aaron and his sons, boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting and there eat it and the bread that is the basket of ordination. So now, as a part of their sacrifice of the ordination or the saturation offering, this is how they're being saturated, remember, they do something that resembles another offering that we talked about, right? The peace offering. They sit down and they eat a meal together. Right, they're sitting down at the, the, the tent of the sanctuary and Moses is with the priests and they're all kind of feasting on this food and they're doing it at the front door of the tent of meeting, which the implication is like God is sitting down at the table with them. Right, they're all sharing in this meal together. They feast in God's presence, sharing relationship with him and with one another. That's telling us that God's, priest, peace, uh, sorry, God's priests feast in relationship with him. 
And this solidifies the message that the priests do not just have a job to do, they have a relationship to live out of. And that this is a key part of their saturation. So the last piece of holy saturation is this. Holy saturation looks like daily reveling in relationship with God, delighting in relationship with him. Okay, so, so that's everything that they do. And you would think that that would be enough to call them saturated, right? To ordain them. But it's not quite enough. Verse 33. It says to the priests, you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your saturation are complete. For it will take seven days to saturate you. This means that every one of the priests leaves their home for seven days to go live in the sanctuary. For seven days, they sit outside the door of the Holy of Holies. For seven days, they bask in God's presence or outside the place where God's presence dwells. For seven days, they make their home with God. But not only that, it's clear here when we bring kind of instruction from Exodus 29 to the table and, and evaluate this, that they don't just live in the sanctuary, but that every single one of the seven days, they repeat every step of the process over again. So every single one of the seven days, they are making a sin offering, and they are making a burnt offering, and they are making an ordination offering where they take blood and put it on their right ear and put it on their right hand and put it on their right foot and where they sit down and eat a meal together and where they are uh, recognized as being parts of the sanctuary. Day after day after day, they do the same exact practices for seven days. And I can't help but think, like, so after they finish this, they are declared ordained. And I can't help but think of the disciples, right, after Jesus had ascended. Jesus yielded his life and atonement for sin, right? That's the sin offering. Jesus purchased their lives, the lives of the disciples for himself, right? That's the burnt offering. They came to understand after they saw Jesus' death and resurrection that everything they had belonged to him, the burnt offering. And then, uh, you know, of course, he rose from the dead, proving that he was powerful to accomplish these things. And then he said, Go and wait, and you're going to be saturated with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you'll receive power when he comes upon you. So what do they do? For 10 days, they go in Acts 1, 12 through 14. Then they return to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem. Literally that day, they, they walked a Sabbath day's journey away from the Mount of Olivet. And when they had entered, they went into an upper room where they were staying. And Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, Zu Judas the son of James, all these with one accord for 10 days were devoting themselves to prayer, saturating in prayer. And then, after day 10, in the closed-off room, wind starts to blow, and Holy Spirit falls on them in tongues of fire, and they are saturated, 
for his ministry. And from that moment on, the world as they knew it would be transformed. Okay, so Leviticus 8, 35. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged, so that you do not die. For so I have been commanded. Now, there's no threat on you <laughs> that if you do not do things in a certain way, that you will certainly encounter the judgment of the Lord. But there was for these guys. The holiness of the Lord was so powerful. And the, the importance of carrying out every single detail of his commandments was so important that they did indeed, they had to be fully saturated, fully set apart from this world in order to be prepared for the work that they were calling them to. And if they weren't, if they missed it, one of the seven days, right, then, uh, then the threat is on their lives because they are dealing with the very holiness of God when they deal with these things. Okay, so what? So what? I have a few, uh, and we're going to roll through them pretty quickly. Number one, becoming God's priest starts with faith in Jesus. Right, so... So if you want to be used by God, if you, uh, if you get a sense, oh, there's gotta, I have to have a bigger purpose, right? God has to be calling me to something here. I want you to first know that we don't do for God, we live life with God, right? So, so the beginning of what God does through us starts with a reunited relationship with him, right? And we actually live out of that place of reconciled relationship with him. So if you are here this morning and you have not placed your trust or your faith in Jesus and I'm talking up here and you get the sense like, oh, I believe that God wants to use me. I'm going to tell you first that you need to be reconciled to God. You need to place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord and you need to start following Jesus, right? And, if, and from that place, that is where God can begin to use you for his purposes. All right, so number two. Recognize your priestly calling and holy spaces. It is confounding that God chooses to use human beings to accomplish his purposes. But it is the most significant purpose that we could possibly be called to. No thing that you do in service to him is a small thing. It is all holy. Right? So, so as we talk about the idea that we are stories God is writing about Jesus making things new, that as we live our lives, as we uh, kind of walk from the day to day, uh, the things that we might call mundane or ordinary, in other circumstances might be mundane or ordinary, but in our circumstance, all of those things are opportunities for holy moments where we meet with God or we bring the reality of God to bear on the situation around us, right? So we need to like reframe our thinking to start observing the, the places that we go, the relationships that we walk in, uh, the, 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 the times that we spend in uh, coffee shops, the times that we spend in our neighborhoods. We need to recognize all of that as opportunity that God wants to seize for his work. Right? Nothing is ordinary anymore. Okay. Finally, number three. Number three, be saturated in Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 says this. 
do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Right? And the idea is, if you've seen a person who's really drunk, you can, they're pretty saturated, right? Like they're, they're, they're pretty, uh, pretty covered in, in whatever that thing is that they have consumed, right? Don't be saturated with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, right? Be saturated with the Holy Spirit. The reason he is saying this is because if you are going to accomplish the things that God has for you to accomplish, just as, uh, you know, uh, when you imbibe alcohol and then uh, you get enough of it and you get to the point where that thing actually begins controlling you instead of you controlling you, he's saying, let's not let that thing be the control, the thing that controls you. Let's let Holy Spirit be the thing that controls, the one who controls you. Right? So, so be filled with Holy Spirit. So you are called to a responsibility. But guess what? It is not within you to perform the responsibility that you have been called to. Right? You have to draw on what Jesus has given you. Which means that you need to be filled with the Spirit. And being filled with the Spirit only comes when we create intentional space for Him to fill us. And that's why we emphasize practicing spiritual disciplines. I just want to, as we close this morning, I want to read this quote to you. A spiritual discipline is any activity that will eventually enable me to do that which currently I cannot do by direct effort. Right? It is a holy and a righteous calling that we have been called to, and it is not currently within us to do the things that Jesus wants to do through us. We need to rely on Holy Spirit. Uh, as we even consider how far God has taken us, uh, Bob Petty, our district superintendent for the Midwest District, one of the things that he has reinforced to our pastors time and time again over the last two years is this. The thing that he has reinforced to us is that the disciplines that have gotten you here will not get you there. What has brought you here will not get you there, right? We take steps and we engage new disciplines to create the space so that what we cannot currently do by direct effort, we will rely on the Holy Spirit as we create space for him to fill us. We will rely on him to do through us time and time again. You need whatever Holy Spirit has to offer. And the only way that Holy Spirit will do his saturating and shaping and empowering work is if you cultivate the space for him to do so. So what does this mean practically? Like, don't neglect worship, right? Create space for intentional prayer and reflection. Spend time in the word. Let it shape you. Imagine things in in your life where you really want to see God move and spend time fasting and praying for those things, right? Practice spiritual disciplines. Create space for the Holy Spirit to work. So that's what I want to tell you. So now, something else that I want to do this morning. Instead of doing communion, uh, we are doing something a little different. So I'd like to invite the elders to come up here. The elders are those who have been tasked with the responsibility to equip the saints for the work of the ministry here at Renovation Church. And so as I was uh, thinking about what the Lord was doing through this, I thought it would be especially appropriate. We all have been given ministry to do. We have responsibility that God has called us to as an extension of the work that he's done inside of us. And so I I thought it would be appropriate if we could just have uh, the elders 
bless you all in prayer for the ministry that he's called you to. And so our elders are gonna pray for you, and then after, after we all have the chance to pray, then we will uh, we'll sing and worship together as we close. So.